Everybody, it's good to see you all here. This is a familiar passage, and you know we're we're working through this series on who is Jesus, and we're looking at reasons why um, why we don't trust Jesus at times, um, why people don't trust Jesus, while we sometimes sporadically trust Jesus. So again, it's a familiar passage, the parable of the the Good Samaritan. And the parable told by Jesus Christ is, is prompted by a question. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you were here last week, it was the same, it's the same question that was asked by the rich ruler. And before we get into the text, I just want to spend a little bit of time on what Jesus means by eternal life and what these people are asking. So... The idea of eternal life is not one that it's really developed in the Jewish Bible. So, you know, throughout the Old Testament, this is not really how they understood it. They, the, the Jews um, had hope in the, the promises of God, and there was the promise of a future kingdom of Israel that would be ruled by a descendant of David, and that was going to be like the national salvation for Israel. And so that's how they understood their, their future. So when Jesus comes, he starts proclaiming what the New Testament Gospels communicate as the gospel of the kingdom. And so it's, it's still the concept of the kingdom of God, but Jesus enhances this gospel of the kingdom from what they understood from the Jewish scriptures, and it's, and it's broadened. And, that, and one of the features of it is that it's more individualized. It's not just, hey, Israel, here's what I'm going to do for you. Jesus begins to really speak to individuals about their status and their experience of eternal life. The other aspect of eternal life that Jesus really developed um, was the fact that it wasn't something that was going to start in some distant future. Um, it was something that was going to begin right now. So when Jesus came, he said, you know, in his, one of his first open speeches in the synagogue in Capernaum, he said, you know, he read the, um, read the prophecy out of the book of Isaiah, and he said, and he closed it up, and he said, this, this prophecy has been fulfilled now in your presence. And it was a prophecy about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus when he came to earth, he inaugurated this kingdom. And so it's more than individualized, and it could begin now. So it's not just this national thing that's going to happen in the future. It's, it's something that is going to indeed be national, but individuals will be participating, and it was starting now. So when Jesus is, is performing his miracles, when he's healing people, when he's feeding people, he's not doing these things uh, to show everybody how great he is. He's showing people that this is what it means to live in the kingdom of God under my rule as the Messiah. People are going to be fed. People are going to be healed. Sicknesses are going to be no more. And people are not going to be affected by death. And so when, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then is the, is the presence of Christ on earth as the Spirit continues to fulfill that, that kingdom of God. And so um, it's somewhat of a new idea that Jesus was proclaiming, this, this possibility of eternal life. And, and it, was, it was novel enough. Now, it's not like it's not present in the Old Testament at all. 
But, but Jesus added some things so that even the rich and the famous and the powerful were wondering, what is this eternal life that Jesus is talking about and what must I do to inherit it? So you even have the rich ruler from last week and this, this uh, lawyer, and then the lawyer wasn't necessarily wealthy, but they were like lawyers and judges today. They had a, a lot of power in determining right and wrong, and so he's a leader in the nation. And so he comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers him differently than he did the rich ruler because Jesus could see the heart of these people asking him that question. And so he doesn't say, you know, here are the commandments, do these, and this, you know, have the response. He, he says, you know what, you're a lawyer. You tell me what the law says. You tell me what the law says. How do you read it? And the lawyer answers correctly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then, then he asks, well, then Jesus says, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You will inherit eternal life. But then he says to justify himself, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the text says that the lawyer asked the question in order to justify himself. So it seems like, it seems like Jesus has pinpointed something in this lawyer's life that the lawyer feels he needs to make an excuse for. Because that's what, when we make an, you know, when we're told something or when we're accused of something, we'll make an excuse, and that making of an excuse is an effort to say, you know what, yes, I failed, yes, I neglected to do what I was supposed to do, but here's why, and because of that, I'm okay. So Jesus tells the parable, doesn't answer the question, and the parable, as you, you know, Lawrence read it, the parable doesn't even answer the question. The question is, who is my neighbor? What the parable answers, or what the parable tells us, is what does it look like to be neighborly? Here's what it means to be a neighbor. Not who is your neighbor, but here's what it means to be a neighbor. One scholar says, he says, you know, life itself shows who the neighbor is. Life will reveal to you what neighbor it is you're supposed to help. The real point is not to define the neighbor, but to be the neighbor. So Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is you need to become a neighbor. And so I think that there are, I want to address three things in this in this story about this lawyer and the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the first thing is, is I think the, 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 the passage does indeed reveal the truth that all of us, even the rich, even the powerful, even the leaders, feel a need to experience eternal life, which means that there's some recognition that we're not experiencing it now. The second thing is that even though we recognize our need for it, um, we already think that we're worthy of it, even though we're not. We already think we're worthy of eternal life, this experience of eternal life, both the eternal life here, all right? So Jesus says, it's, it's started. 
Eternal life in the kingdom of God has started. So we have a need to sense it and experience it now. We're not worthy of it, but we think we should be. And the last one is that we'll see that it's God that actually gives us the ability to be worthy of it. So the first thing, felt need to experience. It's a common human thing to desire to experience what Jesus describes as eternal life. So it's, it's not just answering the question, what's going to happen? And this is part of Jesus' expansion of this idea. It's not, he's not just trying to answer the question that people may have, well, what's going to happen to me when I die? Which is a question that we have. But also the question which we also ask, what is life supposed to be about now? You know, and, and most of the major world religions connect what our afterlife is, whether we're, we're Buddhists or Christians or Jews or Muslim, our afterlife is somehow dependent upon our present. So there's a connection between our life now and the afterlife. And so it's, it's important that we keep these connected. And Jesus is saying eternal life begins now. Yes, it's in the future, but it's possible now, at least an aspect of it. And it's not insignificant that it's the rich and the wealthy that are recorded. It's the only two people in the Gospels that ask this question, a rich person and a wealthy person. Of all people, these are the two, excuse me, a rich person and a ruling person. Of all people, these, these two types of people should be the ones most comfortable, most secure, most confident. But they are the ones that come and ask Jesus this question. And even, you know, the, the text says that, that the lawyer wanted to test Jesus. I think, you know, those of us that like to test or push others do so because we're, we're wanting to prove ourselves to some degree. We're wanting to prove ourselves. And we want to prove ourselves because we're most insecure about who we are. And so even this lawyer who's trying to test Jesus, it reveals his insecurity. So much so that he needed to go and ask Jesus the question. So what do we do with Jesus' answer to this question? So if we think back over the last few weeks, so not last week, but the week before, we saw where Jesus was trying to address people who put all their hope in the approval of their family. Last week was people that were putting their hope in, in their possessions and their riches as for security. So family provides security and approval and confidence. Wealth and riches and possessions do. And here we have a lawyer who is in a leadership position. He's held up and honored. And what Jesus says in that parable in point out, you know, he tells the story. It's not like this is a random story that Jesus pulled out of his hat. It, it is addressing what, just like the, the rich ruler, it's a, Jesus is addressing what this man is putting his trust in. And so you have the Levite. And so the Levite was one of the, the, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were selected to be the, to be the priestly tribe, the, the tribe that would take care of the temple, that would do the sacrifices. They were the ones responsible for the religious life of the nation of Israel. Okay? And, and, of the, and of the Levites, there were the priests. And the priests were the ones that carried out all of the official ceremonies, sacrificial things. So you had the, the family tribe of the Levites, which he would have been one. And then you had the, 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 um, the elite of that family, the priests. And both of these 
people, the Levite and the priest, they failed to help this family member, a Jew. It's a Jew that was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and they failed. And so Jesus is pointing out that this man here is putting his identity and his strength, his confidence, his security in who he is, um, and Jesus raises the point, it's the Samaritan that ended up being the neighborly person. And the Samaritans were a people, they were mixed blood. So these Assyrians came in to capture Israel several centuries, uh, five or six centuries, actually it's about seven or eight, um, in the past, and it mixed. So it's, it's the Assyrians, after conquering Israel, brought Assyrian people in, and they became a mixed race. And so those of Judah maintained their racial purity, and so they had these racist perspectives towards the Samaritans. And this, this lawyer was putting his confidence in who he was as a leader in Israel, and that he wasn't this mixed-race person, wasn't a Samaritan. And so Jesus points that out. So do we find our security and strength what we're looking for in our family, do we find it in riches or do we find it in, in how society thinks about us in our role, in our position, in the people that we're amongst? So we need, we need eternal life. We need to feel justified. We need to feel like we are approved by God and worthy of this life that we sense that we need. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have to recognize that we can't or we won't do these things. You know, will we give up all of our possessions, sell of our possessions and give them to the poor? Will we sacrifice and, and risk uh, offending our family members? Would we help somebody in desperate need, even though they may be our, the people we despise or disdain? What would Jesus, I think it's important to ask the question, we read through these passages, what would Jesus point out in us? What would Jesus point out in you? Would it be possessions and income and wealth? Would it be socioeconomic status? Would it be political affiliations? Would it be family approval? Would it be our intellect or education or our vocation? What, what is it that we think is going to give us life? Because Jesus says, hey, do these and you will live. We all want to live. It's the here and the now and the future that Jesus sees as eternal life. So we can see, we can see in, in Jesus' response that there's a commitment. There's a commitment to relationships and people. There's a commitment to loving people, of being a good neighbor, and that there's, those relationships are really what, it's, what life is about. Being somebody who loves and gives of yourself so, for, for others. You know, and again, I, I think I'm just going to maybe preach a series of sermons on that book, The Good Life, which is about, hey, if you want to pursue a good life, you've got to really invest in the relationships in your life. And so, it's interesting in this, in this book that um, they say, you know, 
ancient wisdom from a number of sources has been pointing out this reality. If you really want to live a good life, invest in the relationships, be a good neighbor, commit to community service and society and your family and friends. It says, we note that these parallels, so they're coming out with all these conclusions in this book, we note these parallels with ancient wisdom to put our science into a broader context and to highlight the eternal significance of these questions and findings. The eternal significance, these scientists say. With a few exceptions, science has not been much interested in the ancients or in received wisdom. Striking out on its own path after the Enlightenment, science has been like the young hero on a quest for knowledge and truth. It may have taken hundreds of years, but in the era of, area of human well-being, we are now approaching a full circle. Scientific knowledge is finally catching up to the ancient wisdom that has survived the test of time. And what, has, what have they found? What have these scientists found is the key to a great life now. Because all of these studies, as well as our own Harvard study, so they had this whole list of all these other corollary studies, and they're saying, hey, what we have found in our science is what the ancients have been saying for thousands of years. They bear witness to the importance of human connections. They show that people who are more connected to family, to friends, and to community are happier and physically healthier than people who are less well-connected. So again, are we going to experience eternal life? It's going to be an investment into people. It's going to be an investment into people, to developing relationships, to sacrificing yourself for loving others. But they also point out in this book two really critical things. We may have come to learn this, but we don't do it. Our desires and what we really end up doing are contrary to what we now know to be true. The ancient wisdom has said it. Science is now saying it, but we don't do it. We actually don't end up doing it. We don't make the sacrifices that we need to for the relationships in our lives. And what they have found is that we typically tend to keep pursuing money and possessions as a source of life, even though for thousands of years, ancient wisdom has said, this is not going to make you happy. That's one thing they found. The second thing is that our society as a whole, our culture as a whole, is also steering us away from those relationships. You know what Jesus calls these two things? The flesh and the world. That's what he calls those two things. And what these scientists are saying is that the flesh pushes us away from those kinds of relationships, and the world is pushing us away from those kinds of relationships. We can't do it. We can't do it. But yet, Jesus and the law of Moses makes the bar even higher. So, you know, what these guys are saying, these scientists are saying is that, listen, invest in your marriage, invest in your kids, invest in your neighbors. What Jesus and the law says is even higher. What they are saying is to love your enemies. Love the people you disdain. See, we can, we can idolize our families and invest everything we have in our families and be idolatrous and disobey Jesus. Jesus calls us and our families, and this is the role of parents. 
And I would say, fathers and husbands, this is your role as leader. It is your responsibility to lead your family into the lifestyle that Jesus is teaching. He calls us and our families, all people, to a higher standard. So what does it mean when Jesus says, be a neighbor? I think there's at least three things we can see. One, being neighborly is a life orientation to extend compassion and kindness to those in need. That's point one. It's a lifestyle of showing mercy and compassion to those who are in need. The second thing is that we have to discover those in need. The Samaritan discovered the person in need on, his, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Another commentator says this, he says, love does not begin by defining it, its objects, it discovers them. It discovers them. What we often lack is our discovery. Because what, what we tend to do, this is part of our cultural, this is part of the, how the culture pushes away from it. What, what the social scientists have noted over the last several decades is that we as a, as a people continue to isolate ourselves more and more from those who are in need. Neighborhoods and, and, and cities and places where we choose to live, are in, we, we increasingly distance ourselves from problems. And there's more isolation. And you, we all can see this in the, in, in the culture that we're in, whether we're talking about socioeconomic differences or political differences or moral differences or religious differences. We are moving to people that think and act and believe and have the same class as us and are away from those who are different. Our tendency is to isolate ourselves. What we have to do if we're going to follow Jesus is to uh, uh, discover and initiate into people's lives that are in need because if we just stay in our circles, we won't discover people in need because our tendency, and this, the Proverbs point this out as well, our tendency is to distance and isolate ourselves from interruptions in our lives. The third point, so it's... it's one, we have to have a lifestyle of mercy and compassion towards people who are in need. Second point, it, it takes some initiative on our part to discover the people who are in need. And the third point is that it's going to be compassion and mercy to those who are not like us. It's not, it's not going to be people in our existing spheres it's not going to be people in our same socioeconomic class. It's not going to be people in our same political affiliation. What did, you know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy to love people that love you. If you really want to see what God's love, look, God's love looks like, you need to love your enemies. So the Levite and the priest, and so there's a law in the law of Moses that says, if you see an animal that belongs to an enemy, you are to take that animal, like, like in a dangerous spot or if it like got out of its pen, it's, it's isolated somewhere. If you come across the animal of your enemy and it is in need of help, you are required to take that animal, to feed it, to care for it, and to get it back to your enemy. That's an animal. So here we had a Levite and a priest 
They didn't see an animal on the road. They saw an actual brother Jew, a person, a child of God, and they went around it. So they, that law is not just for the animals, obviously. They, they failed in that. They disdained that man, but the disdained person, the Samaritan, the mixed blood, the, the person that was an outcast because of their racial mix, he was the one who was neighborly. He was the good neighbor. You know, the, the New Testament emphasizes this. You know, we, we as, the, you know, the people of God are supposed to um, transform their lives and follow God in a, in a, in a moral way and, and get their families established. And we, we work to become mature so that we can, as a community, Meet the pressing needs of the world. That's what God is calling all people to, to. To people that act like Jesus Christ, that act like the Samaritan. So that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we only loving those that affirm us? How, are we loving people that need discovery? And are we loving our enemies? We have to recognize, I think if we're sincere and true to ourselves, that we probably fall short in this. That you probably fall short, I probably fall short. But this, this is what Jesus is saying. If you, if you want to be worthy of eternal life, this is who you need to be. This is who you need to be. Well, it's obvious it's, it's impossible for us to be this way unless... God gives us the ability to do so. And this would be the first part of what, what the lawyer told Jesus. You are to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the command to love God seems strange, but it's the only way that we can actually love our neighbors. So to love anyone, we must love who they are, right? Right? If we're going to have any sort of affection for somebody, we need to know we must love who they are. But, and so to love God, we've got to know who he is. To love God, we've got to know who he is. But to know who he is and to love who he is, we've got to know who he is. And to know who he is is... is is to recognize the compassion and the mercy he has towards us. If we fully recognize the compassion and the mercy that he has towards us, it's because we then have also recognized our need for him. We've recognized our need for his compassion. We've recognized our need for his, his mercy. And so this lawyer didn't have that recognition. He didn't have that recognition. That, that lawyer, you know, at the end of the story, Jesus says, who was the one that proved to be a neighbor? It's interesting that the, the text, the lawyer did not respond, oh, it was the Samaritan. The lawyer can't even name. He can't even say the word Samaritan. It was the one Jesus identified him as the Samaritan. To this lawyer, it's the one. It's the one. He, he did not recognize his need 
for, for God, his need for mercy, his need for compassion. And he still, even at the end of Jesus' parable, still couldn't recognize the need, that, that, see the need that the Samaritan would have. If we can't see our need for God to justify us, if we don't see our need for God to make us worthy of eternal life, we'll never get to eternal life. But if you could think of the difference, if, if, if humanity lived like Jesus said in this, the world would be the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am bringing the kingdom, and, and the kingdom is going to be like this. That all of this, this division and polarization that we have now and running away from our enemies and disdaining and hating our enemies and condemning our enemies will be done. And if we don't live this way, it's because we have not yet been broken by Jesus' love. See, the, the, the Bible says that we were enemies of God, we were enemies of Jesus, and yet God still came and died for us, that Jesus still loved us. So, do you recognize that you were an enemy of God? That you were an enemy of Jesus? Do, do you recognize that, that you have disdained people not like you? If we don't see that we disdained and hated others, but to be worthy of eternal life is to be opposite of that. It, it, to, to not recognize that, that God is the one that's got to make us worthy, we'll never, we'll never experience it. So our loves and desires and the world's pressures, as the scientist has seen as, as we know, they drive us from this kind of lifestyle. And so Jesus, he saw that even though we were enemies, he died to forgive us of our, our hostility and hate. He bore our punishment for our sins against others and against God. He rose from the dead to show that his eternal life was something that he was putting his power behind, and he had the power to live eternally and to grant eternal life. And so, so belief in Jesus' death for us brings life for us. And that's the gift. That's his mercy. That's his compassion. If we're not broken by that to the point where we can then, too, love our enemies, if we're not broken by that, then we're not worthy of eternal life. So, you know, if you're sitting here as a Christian, it's, it's, we have to ask ourselves, are we discovering and loving those who are in need as we love ourselves? Is our family discovering and loving those in need as, our, as we love ourselves as a family? If not, Peter says you have forgotten the forgiveness of your sins. And James says, if you, have, if you say you have faith but you don't have works, your faith is nothing. That's why these people, that's why Peter and James were, were writing these things. Belief in the gospel without the neighborliness that Christ is teaching is at best a weak faith and at worst, possibly an insincere one. Let me pray real quick. God, this is a hard passage for anyone to read. 
And it is hard for us to love our neighbors as Jesus has taught us to love. God, we recognize that we, we, we do long for it. We recognize we can't do it. Um, and we recognize that we need uh, God, you to do it in us. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray that you would help us and deepen us in the love that you have had for us, even while we were your enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.